Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 12, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. This morning, A Vision for You asks the question, why are we here? With us today to expound on that answer is Harlan. Harlan is a recovered compulsive overeater, originally from Chicago, who currently resides in Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, both a teacher and a student of the big book, and he is dedicated to teaching the program of recovery as outlined in the big book. And we are very pleased to welcome this morning our speaker, Harlan. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. I'm Harlan. I'm a compulsive overeater. And this morning, we're going to attempt as best we can to answer the question, why are we here on two different levels? And the two different levels will be addressed uh, as such in the ABCs on page 60. But what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to give as much attention as we can to the other side of the question, why are we here? Why are we here is to affect a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps so that we can live our lives free of the compulsion to eat food that is bad for us, to have sanity around food, to be sane when it comes to decisions like that uh, rather than insane. And we're going to look today at the most misunderstood steps of the 12. If two is the most overlooked step, and two is clouded in a lot of misunderstanding, no question, then three and four, though, are by far the most misunderstood steps of the 12. We're going to look today at Chapter 5, and we're going to try to demystify the third and fourth steps, we're going to try to break them down in as basic and simple a uh, denominator as we possibly can, and we're going to try to blow blow the doors off some of the misunderstanding that have shrouded these steps for a long time. And we start on on page 58, how it works. And chapter 5 was written uh, by God, I believe, as was the entire book. Bill was very nocturnal at this time of his life. He was sitting there at night with his pad, and he said that he knew that it was time to write Chapter 5. And he said it was as if the pencil and the paper had a life of their own. And he said in less than 20 minutes, he wrote Chapter 5, one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature within one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature that the world has ever seen. Now, there was a lot of controversy around this. Some of it got changed. Some of it got, you know, rearranged. But this is the essence of what, what was written. And we look at page 58, and we see some consistencies in the big book, and that there are things that when they want us to know them, they repeat them. Let's look at what some of these are. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Thoroughly followed our path is an absolute. Those who do, excuse me, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Again, 
thoroughly and completely are absolute kind of words. <clears throat> Excuse me. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And what is it that we're looking to be honest with ourselves about? Is it cash register honesty? Yeah, that's part of it. Is it honesty in the workplace? Yeah, that's part of it. But the most important thing that they're trying to emphasize here is that I am completely honest with myself about this fact. And this will call back to why we're here. If I am a compulsive overeater, that means, what that means is, I am a person who has a twist of the mind that in search of an effect, and the effect, as Dr. Silkworth describes in the big book, the effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes about instantly as the result of eating certain foods, certain amounts of foods. And that if I am honest with myself, I cannot delude myself into thinking that when I begin eating Kit Kat bars or I begin eating raisinets, that I am going to be able to control the amount of these substances once they're inside my body because I also have, coupled with the twist of the mind, is an allergy of the body. And if I have the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body, that means I will not be able to control the amount I eat once I've started because of the allergy, and I will not be able to keep from eating these foods now that I want to, now that I'm armed with self-knowledge because of the mental twist. That as a human being, I'm going to get angry, scared. I'm going to get selfish, self-seeking. I'm going to have guilt and shame and remorse. And as these things burst to the surface inside my heart, they are going to drive me into the food because they're going to activate the mental twist. The mental twist is going to search for the effect. What we're going to get down to this morning is not talking about food and weight. We're going to get down to causes and conditions. And we're going to keep in mind what it says in Chapter 2, two things, that the elimination of drinking is but a beginning, and we're also going to keep in mind as we go through these steps that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather than the body. <clears throat> They are, there are such unfortunates, back to the chapter. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. So once again, I'm calling upon myself to get honest with the fact that I have never been able to eat Oreo cookies in moderation. The only time I ever ate one Oreo cookie was when it was the last Oreo cookie that I could get my hands on. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. And there's the third reference to it right there. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. Here is what I call step zero. It's not officially called step zero, but I call it that because to me, this is the launching pad of, of my recovery. And it says very simply, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. And I was asked very, very long time ago, I've been in these rooms 35 years, I was asked a very long time ago on the 
porch of a, of a church, what is it you want? Why are you here? And that's why we have that title today. Why are you here? And I looked in there and I told this gentleman, well, those people are not eating. And he said, that's just part of it. And what he said to me is, the ones in that room that are in recovery, the ones that are in that room that are not dieting with group support, are not eating and they are doing so happily. That they're not in there fighting food. That they're not in there swinging from the chandeliers, stark, raving abstinence. And he said, if you're willing to go to any length to get it, and he said to me, are you? And I said, yes. And he said to me, because that's very important, because you've got to be out of ideas. And he always said to me, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Are you out of ideas? Now, he called me kid because I was in my 20s. I was in my early 20s when I came in. Now I'm an old man. I'm 59. But I was in my early 20s then. And he said to me, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Are you out of ideas? Because if I still harbor ideas on how I'm going to do this myself or alter this or take it cafeteria style, I'll take this but leave that, I'm not going to recover. He said, and then he pointed me in this and he says, then you are ready to take certain steps. So this is extremely important for me to ask myself, and I have to be absolutely brutally ready to do this, and the only way I'm going to be ready to do this work is when I've suffered enough pain. The only thing I need to remember is this. I cannot do this on my own even now that I want to, even now that I know that Kit Kat bars are not as good a treat are not as healthy a treat, excuse me, as celery. Armed with that information, it will not keep me out of the food. At some of these, back to the chapter, page 58, some of these we bought, we thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Fearless and thorough. Now, we're going to start blowing the doors off steps three and four here. There's nothing in there about perfect. Fearless and thorough. And one of the things you hear in OA today are people that are waiting to get to the perfect weight, have the perfect relationship, be in the perfect place of mind, be in perfect existence and harmony with butterflies singing and birds helping them get dressed in the morning until they're ready to do their fourth step. I have to stop waiting for that day. I have to move forward. Excuse me, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. No mention of perfect. Some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go, absolutely. In other words, I am letting go of everything. Remember that we deal with alcohol, back to the chapter, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Now, I was just told that my, my ideas, excuse me, when I tried to hold on to my old ideas, the result was nil until I let go, absolutely. And if the big book wants to tell me something, it will repeat it in different ways. Here it says, half measures availed us nothing. It doesn't avail us half a recovery. It avails me nothing. 
We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Again, complete abandon is an absolute, complete abandon of what? My old ideas and my old behaviors. Now, before, we're not going to read the steps here this morning and take meeting time for that, but if you have a fourth edition big book and you're following along and you'd like to see where our 12 steps come from, I'm going to ask you to join me on page 263 in the fourth edition and on page 263 in the fourth edition. We're going to look historically at where the steps come from briefly. Number one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Number three, moral inventory. Number four, confession. Number five, restitution. And number six, continued work with other alcoholics. We can go back to page, uh, page 60. But these are where our 12 steps come from. And Bill Wilson maintained throughout his life, he never intended to write 12 steps. What he intended to do was to attempt to close some of the loopholes that the alcoholics were jumping through in the six-step program of recovery that they had been working through the Oxford group at that time. Back to the chapter, page 60. Many of us exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is, we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Now, we're going to start blowing the doors off some of the mystique that we feel about the third and fourth step in just a second here, but let's kind of look back before we look at three and four. Let's kind of look back at these ABCs and let's see if something that we've been seeing and, excuse me, hearing in meetings all of our OA lives has some more meaning after we get done with what we're going to do here. Our description of the alcoholic, the description of the alcoholic in the big book is the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, in chapters two and three, this gives us the picture of what the illness is in the doctor's opinion. Bill's story illustrates steps one and two perfectly. And chapters two and three display for us in beautiful form the need for the spiritual experience, the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, as the only solution. And in step three, or excuse me, in chapter three, we examine the thinking that precedes the first drink, the first compulsive bite. The chapter to the agnostic, chapter four, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. Let's take a second to expand on these. That we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. A lot of people read that and they don't know exactly what we're talking about, that we were alcoholic. So let's say that I am a compulsive overeater. In review, again, a compulsive overeater is a person who has a twist of the mind that will irresistibly drive them into eating food that they really don't even want to be eating, but they can't help themselves. And we've all, if you're listening and you're a compulsive overeater, we have all had that situation where you know dang well you don't want to be eating Raisinets, you don't want to be eating Kit Kat bars, and then there you are eating them, and you woke up with a resolve 
not to eat Oreo cookies, and there you are eating them, and you don't understand why, because once this malady takes hold, we become a baffled lot. But the mind of a compulsive overeater only knows how to make us feel better by driving us into the food. And we could not manage our own lives. Now remember also that if I'm a compulsive overeater and I have an allergy of the body which makes it impossible to stop when I've started and a mind that makes it impossible to stay stopped, I can't manage my life. It doesn't mean that some of you aren't great teachers, great doctors, great accountants, great nurses, great housewives, great moms, great fathers, great uncles, great brothers. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that on my own, I cannot control my intake of food now that I want to. I have insanity around food rather than sanity. So we're going to be looking in just a second here at the causes and conditions that we're going to uh, marshal that power of God into our lives so as to, as to quiet it down. B, page 60, that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. I have to believe in my heart, in my soul, that nothing that is of this earth is going to fix me. Money won't do it. Fame won't do it. Poverty won't do it. Sex won't do it. Being married won't do it. Being single won't do it. Now, I'm going to mention on the phone here some names to ponder. And these are names to ponder of people who had those externals. Jim Gandolfini, Chris Farley, Karen Carpenter, Mama Kess, Oliver Hardy, Jackie Gleason. These are John Candy. These are some of the more visible people that we can look at and say they had those externals. They had the fame. They had the money. And it couldn't save them. Because nothing that is of this earth is going to relieve my alcoholism. Nothing. And it doesn't matter that Uncle Sid is still drinking or Fred is still unemployed or Mary won't stop cracking her gum. It doesn't matter what these other people are doing. It's not going to relieve my compulsive overeating and see that God could and would if he were sought. And in order to have that C down, I have to have step two down. And if there's anything that I hear in the phone calls that I get, if there's anything that I see in the meetings, and as I travel the country doing big book retreats, and I've been to most of the states in this union, I just had the pleasure of doing my first one out of the country in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. If, if there's anything that I see, it's people trying to make mortar without sand. In other words, they're trying to work their program with no belief in a power greater than themselves. They have a sense that there's a God. They have a sense that they may have a religion in their heart, but that God doesn't work for them because it's not a God that's personal to them. I have to have a God that is personal to me. And when I sponsor people, I encourage them to do a job description of God that does work for them, that they are willing to believe in. Nothing says you have to believe. It just says you have to be willing to believe. All right, back to the chapter, page 60. Being convinced 
So I have to ask myself, am I? We were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that and what do we do? Just what do we do? Well, let's take a second here to define will and life. My will is my decision-making thinking. My will is my decision-making thinking. Some of us have a will. What is a will? A will is just the decisions that I'm making with my earthly assets while I'm in that attorney's office. A will is my decision-making thinking, and my life is my action. So what am I turning over to God in step four? Now, one of the things we're going to do today is we're going to blow out the idea that we're turning anything over to God in step three. A lot of people say, well, I said this third step prayer, so I turned it over to God. Nonsense. Nonsense. The third step is very clear that it's directing us to do 4 through 12. That's what the third step is. It's a decision. There's three frogs, and they're sitting on a log, and one of the frogs makes a decision to jump off the log. How many people are, how many people, how many frogs are sitting on the log? Three. Whoever said three, you were right. Because a mere decision to jump off the log will get me nowhere. I have to take action. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And I have to be convinced of that. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. Now, we're going to define in this paragraph the character defect of selfishness. And the first character defect that we're going to be dealing with is this selfishness. And what is that selfishness? My zeal, my addiction, to arranging the world and telling everybody where to stand and what to do. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful in trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest, but as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. I'm going to kiss your tush, or I'm going to kick your tush, but I'm going to try to get you to do what I want you to do. I am going to try to get everybody to dance to my music. And when they don't, it's going to create a tremendous disturbance within me. Now we're going to define the character defect of self-seeking. Self-seeking is the things I do to try to get my own way. Let's look at it on page 61. What usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still the play does not suit him, admitting he may be somewhat at fault. He is sure that other people are more to blame. 
We love to blame people. That's what we do. And there's four things we've been doing all our lives, not just as compulsive overeaters, but as humans. And a lot of people do these things, but they don't end up eating raisinettes and they don't end up eating Doritos over it because they don't have the mental twist and they don't have the physical allergy. And the food isn't doing for them what it does for us. It doesn't give them the sense of ease and comfort that it gives us. That sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by eating the food, Dr. Silkworth called that the effect. But here's the four things we love to do, don't we? We lie. We assign blame. We keep score in our relationships, and we fight battles that just don't exist. Those are the four things we just love to do. I love to assign blame, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about when we get into resentment. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion? What is a delusion? A delusion is something that appears real, but it isn't. Magicians use delusions, don't they? That he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only he manages well. So I am a victim of a delusion that says if I would have zigged instead of zagged, if I zagged instead of zigged, everything would be hunky-dory. And the truth is, it's not. Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants and do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not even in his best moments a producer of confusion rather than harmony? So here we are, we're describing self-seeking as those things we do to try to get our own way, the lies we tell, the, the, the people that we butter up to, the people and the things that we use to try to get our own way, and people see through us, and just like we see through them, but we think they can't see through us, they do, and then they retaliate, creating pain and suffering for us, and on and on, and as they do so. It affects us in a way that will activate the mental twist. So they're making us sad. They're making us angry. They're embarrassing us. And the next thing you know, there's one less gallon of ice cream in the world. Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. He's like the retired businessman who lows in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation, the minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century, politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave, the outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him, and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, or our self-pity. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows, and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation but we invariably find at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles we think are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. We don't see it, do we? 
we don't see that we're self-willed run riot because the only brain we've ever known, the only head we've ever been in is our own, and it just makes sense that if these people would just listen to me, everything would be fantastic. Everything would be hunky-dory. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness, back to the chapter. We must, or it kills us. How does it kill us? Again, in review, it kills us because these are the things that have been waking up the mental twist that has been driving us into the food our entire lives. It says in Chapter 2, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather than in the body. And it also says in Chapter 2, the elimination of drinking is but a beginning. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, again, look back to the question and the topic of why are we here? The reason that we're here, once we've established what the problem is, same question, why are we here, that we're compulsive overeaters, we're going to ask the same question, why are we here? We're here rather than in the pay-and-way places. We're here rather than in the gyms. We're here rather than buying infomercials and more uh, uh, self-improvement books because we are here to affect a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps which will circumvent the mental twist in identically the same way ice cream did with none of the devastating side effects. And when he says it kills us, what he is talking about there is it has the power to drive me into the food, and once I'm in the food, the allergy takes over, and I'm going to die in the food probably decades before my time. So when we talk about a progressive fatal illness, this is exactly the nuts and bolts of what we're talking about. We're going to look under the hood now. We're going to dispel the notion that the pay and ways and the commercials tell us that when we have a weight problem, if we reduce our intake of food, reduce our intake of, calorie, intake of calories, we're going to reduce our weight, and in reducing our weight, we're going to solve the problem. If that worked, you wouldn't be on the phone this morning. If that worked, then the Weight Watchers, the Nutrisystems, and all these other places would turn out winners, and they don't. And treatment centers would turn out winners, and they don't. And the bariatric surgeries would turn out winners, and they don't. Jails would turn out winners, and they don't. Because for us, we have got to be divorced from the idea that a reduction in food followed by a reduction in weight will cure us. We have to get to causes and conditions. Remembering that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather than the body, and that's what we're going to be getting into. Back to the chapter, page 62. God makes that possible, and there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Remember we said on the other page that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and that God could and would if he were sought. Okay. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. This is the how and the why. But first of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. So I have to look at that and I have to say the height of audacity 
is for me to think I know what's best for another human being. The height of audacity is for me to think I know what's best for me. The height of audacity is for me to go around playing God. God doesn't run around saying he's Harlan. And there may be philosophers today and historians Harlan, star one to unmute. I'm getting something that says to make it louder, to make it softer. I hope I'm coming out okay. Anyway. Yes, yes. When that, If okay. that happens again, just press yeah. the number eight. Thank you, Harlan. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, now I'm completely up lunch it now. Okay. <laughs> Could we reduce her? There's, there's theologians. There's historians. There's all manner of writers, authors, whatever that is, they're going to spend their day today philosophizing about who God is and who God is not, what God is and what God is not. There's two things I need to know about God today. Two. One, there is one. Two, it's not me. There is a God, and it's not me. Excuse me. This is the how and the why of it. We had a quit playing. First of all, we had a quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, it doesn't say in a month. It doesn't say in a year. It says next, as in right now. Next, right now. When you go to the delicatessen or the bakery and they're serving number 41 and you're number 42, as soon as they get done with 41, they don't say wait a month and we'll take 42. They say 42 and you're next and it's right now. We decided, back to the chapter, that hereafter in this drama of life, bottom of 62, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. That means I have to put God's work and God's interests above my own. I have to put, as the agent, I must put the interest of the principal above my own. I have a fiduciary duty to the principal to put their interests above all else. He is the father. We are his children. Most good ideas are simple in this concept with the keystone of the new and triumphant arch to which we pass to freedom. Now here's your third step promises, top paragraph of 63. So as I look at these third step promises, I'm going to remember that based on what I've just read, Something is beginning to shift in me already, and that is all of my life I was a taker, and all of my life I would suck the marrow out of life as best I could, and it was never enough. No matter who gave me, whatever it is they gave me, if it was money, it wasn't enough. If it was attention, it wasn't enough. There was never enough, and now I am beginning to shift in my viewpoint. My paradigm here is beginning to shift and I am now going to begin this process of being a giver and an, and an adder to life, I'm going to be a fountain rather than a drain. And as this shift is beginning, now I read the third step promises, and it says, when we sincerely took such a position, that's the one just described, all sorts of remarkable things followed. Now watch your capitals here if you're following along with the book. We had a new employer capital. 
being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. In other words, I'm not going to go out into the world today to see what I can suck out of the world. I'm going to go out into the world and do everything I need to do to serve my God, to serve my creator. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Wow, that sentence is so important. I'm I'm absolutely going to stop there for just a second. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. I'm compelled to stop there because it's so much the antithesis of who I was born. I was born a taker. I was born somebody who looked to see what you could give me. And now I'm going to look to see what I can contribute to life. I am absolutely going a 180 in my thinking and my attitudes and my behaviors. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we we could face life successfully, we became conscious of his presence. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Boy, when it says we were reborn, that's the understatement of the century. I am not the person I was on May 24, 1954 at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. I am nowhere near that person. I may have the same Social Security number I've had since I was like, you know, 16 or whatever, and I, I have the same memories, but I am not that person. Now, some of you listening to this may say, I serve people all the time. I'm a mother, I'm an aunt, I'm a grandmother, I'm a father, I'm a this, I'm a that. Yes, but what's our motive? What's our motive? Those are things we have to look at too. And I've sat in meetings, and some of you have too, with priests and ministers and rabbis and nuns and clergy people and lay people who serve God all the time, and yet they can't put down the food. There's a difference between that kind of service and the working of the steps. <sighs> Sorry. I caught this the cold here the other day. But anyway, there is a difference in my motivation. I am looking to serve with absolutely no expectation of a return. And I'm not knocking priests and ministers and rabbis and mothers and fathers. I'm not knocking any of those things. And there are certain things we have to do but we have to serve our God too. And that might mean a different path, a different motive, a different attitude. And it may mean additional responsibilities. And so these are the things I need to look at. Now, if you're at home or you're in your whatever and you want to do step four, let's do the third step prayer and you can say it along with me if you care to, wherever it is you are. And I'm going to read it out of the book. And step three, the prayer, is not where I turn anything over to God. This is the formal term of surrender, which means I'm now going to do 4 through 12. Let's look at what it says together. We were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. 
take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. There is that repetition of at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. And that's not the first time we've seen that idea in this chapter. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. The wording was, of course, quite optional so long as we expressed the idea, voicing it without reservation. Again, without reservation. Every area of my life, every nook and cranny has to be surrendered. I cannot control one iota of my life, from the color clothes I wear today to any of it. If it feels right, it's God's will. When I'm talking myself into something and the back of my head has that, that committee going on, we all know the name of that committee, and when that committee is starting to meet and I'm talking myself in or out of something, that's my will. That's my will. This is only a beginning. And we hear people in meetings saying, oh, I did the one, two, three waltz, the one, two, three waltz. There's no such thing. This is just a beginning. Steps three and four are a beginning. There's steps that come after this. Though if honestly and humbly made an effect, sometimes a very great one was felt at once. Next, there's that word again, next. Not in a year, not in a month, not in a week, not in eight days, whatever it is. Next we launched out on a course of vigorous action. Now, if, you're, if you've heard me before, or if you've, if you've been at meetings with me or whatever, or you've heard me here on The Vision for You, or you've been to one of my retreats, or you've heard me on the Internet, I'm a person who believes this very strongly. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. This is an action program. There's no chapter in the book that says into thinking. There's no chapter in the book that says into praying. Praying is important, but there's no chapter in the book that says into sitting there and waiting for God to deliver his, his goods. This is an action program. God can't steer a parked car. The first step of which is a personal house cleaning, many of which, many which many of us, I knew I'd get it, had never attempted. Though our decision, decision is step three, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Again, in, let's look at the sentence again. In, <clears throat> excuse me. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once and one of the things you're going to hear in the fellowship of OA is you wait a certain amount of time be before you do your four-step. Nonsense. Nonsense. That's program narishkeit. The Yiddish word of the day is narishkeit. Nar means fool. Narishkeit is foolishness. Okay. The things in ourselves which have been blocking us. Now, we're going to look at the things that have been blocking us. 
Is the fact that you might be a brilliant piano player blocking you? No. Is the fact that you are a brilliant dancer, a brilliant attorney, a brilliant doctor blocking you, or a brilliant teacher or nurse or whatever, mom, dad, whatever? No. We're going to get down to causes and conditions, aren't we, that have been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. Again, we're going to call back to the elimination of drinking is but a beginning. We're not dealing with food here. We're not dealing with how much you eat or what you eat. Sure, absolutely, I have a food plan. Absolutely, I have sanity around my food. I'm not going to eat a hippopotamus for lunch today. But I have sanity. The liquor is but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. The causes and conditions are the things which have been exploding in our hearts and exploding in our minds, which have been driving us irresistibly into the food. Now, let's very briefly look, before we continue with the chapter, at the three basic instincts of life where fear and anger come from. Fear and anger do not just flitter into our hearts. They don't just flitter into our souls. They don't just flitter into our minds. They come from an attack or perceived attack on the basic instincts of life. Now, the time is not going to permit me to expand on this very much, but very briefly, I'm going to go through right now, where does anger come from? Where does fear come from? Fear and anger emanate from an attack on what we already hold or our ambitions for the future in the three basic instincts of life. They are as follows, and they are God-given instincts. They are imbued into our soul by a loving, generous God and that have made it possible for the human race to survive. Let's look at the first one first. The first instinct is the social instinct. Agrarian cavemen, Cro-Magnum man, Peking man, Heidelberg man, they all knew thousands of years ago that they could live safer better living in groups together than they could as scattered singles, that they could protect each other better, that they could hunt more efficiently, they could farm more efficiently, they could raise their children more efficiently, and they could live better in groups. If you want a great illustration of the social instinct and, and that, go to a middle school tomorrow at lunchtime. Go to a high school tomorrow at lunchtime. So being in a group is extremely important. But if we misuse that, or somebody is trying to remove us from the group, we're going to get scared. We're going to get angry. Or our ambitions for the future. I have to make this brief because it's time. Our ambitions for the future. Let's just say, for example, that we have been part of a group and that part of the group is getting old for us right now and we would like to get in with another group of people. Maybe it's the other group at work. Maybe it's the other group at the school. Maybe it's the other group at the hospital. Whatever that may be. And we look to join our, we look to enjoin ourselves to this new group. And one of the people in that group is making it extremely difficult for us to do so because it's apparent to us they really don't want us in the new group. That's going to upset me. That's going to scare me. That's going to make me angry. 
And as those feelings burst to the surface inside of me, my mental twist is going to call upon me to go eat raisinets because the raisinets are going to make me feel better. The raisinets are going to give me the effect, that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the raisinets or the Kit Kat bar and I'm, or the chocolate-covered cherries, and I'm going to eat these things, and it's going to make me feel better. And I tell myself, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to be thin. And then all of a sudden, I get angry. I get angry at the person or the people that won't let me in the new group or that are trying to exclude me from the old group or what have you. And when I get angry, I can assign blame. And once I do, I can abdicate responsibility for my life. I'm eating chocolate-covered cherries. Once I start eating chocolate-covered cherries, the allergy takes over and I'm off to the races. Briefly, let's look at another part of the, of the social instinct, and that is self-esteem. Self-esteem not usually, doesn't usually come from what I really think of myself. Now, bear with me here because I don't know how else to explain this. The subset of the social instinct is self-esteem. And more often than not, what I think of myself is not what I think of myself. It is what I think you think of me. It is what I think you think of me. And if I think you think I'm a pretty good guy, then I'm going to like me a lot better. But if you upset what I think of me by letting me know you think I'm a jerk, then I'm going to think less of me. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get scared. And I'm off to the races again. The second of the three basic instincts of life is the security instinct imbued into us again by a loving God. And the security instinct has three different sections to it. But again, it's either what I'm holding in this area or my ambitions for the future in this area. And the first of the, so, of the security instinct is pocketbook. When you do a fourth step or you listen to a fifth step, the two most um, enumerated uh, entries are going to be finance and romance. Finance and romance are going to take up most of it. But the security instinct, money, pocketbook, we all have this imbued into us by God so that if we get $10, we don't immediately turn around and spend $10. We save some. These are God-given instincts. And we want to go out and we want to make money. We want to hold the job. We want to have these things because we all have ambitions for these areas. Trying to make this succinct, so please bear with me. Anything I currently have in the security instinct or hope to have my ambitions in the security instinct, a threat to those things is going to upset me and it's going to scare me, triggering the mental twist. The twist will drive me into the food. Food gives me the effect but triggers the physical allergy. The allergy makes it impossible for me to stop. So I hope I'm being clear to illustrate just what has been happening around our brain and in our brain and in our hearts, that food is the symptom of those things, that food is the last step in those things, not the primary cause. Now, getting back to the security instinct, we have pocketbook, we have emotional security. Everybody likes to have emotional security. 
And a lot of us have had conversations in our lives with people, and you'll hear people say, I asked you not to talk about that. Maybe they're talking about their, our divorce. Maybe we're talking about an embarrassing moment of our life. Maybe they're talking about a subject which is uncomfortable for us that is upsetting our emotional security. Now, pocketbook has nothing to do with that. And what that is, is they are doing something to upset my emotional security, my ambitions for the future, or what I currently hold. The third part of the security instinct is personal security. And we can all understand that if somebody were to come in looking menacing with a weapon into the rooms where we're at right now or the vehicles where we're at right now, that would be a threat to our personal security. And as a threat to our personal security, we're going to become angry, we're going to become scared, and that's going to wake up the mental twist the mental twist is going to drive us into the food, and the food will trigger the allergy. It'll, it'll give us the effect for about 10 seconds, and then the allergy will kick in. The third of the basic instincts of life is the sex instinct, imbued into us by God so that we could reproduce ourselves or that we could enjoy the courtship and enjoy the intimacy. It doesn't matter whether it's Boy, boy, girl, 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 boy, doesn't matter. It's imbued into us by a loving creator and so that we could enjoy that intimacy. And if we didn't have this sex instinct, within about 100 years, 110 years, from this very moment, the human race, as we know it, would cease to exist. True. It would cease to exist. Okay, so let's look there at, back at the chapter on page 64, therefore, we started on a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods to get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. We're not looking at the things in our makeup which caused our success. Some of you are great salespeople. Some of you are great lawyers. Some of you are great doctors. Some of you are great whatever you are, uh, maintenance people or God knows what, bus drivers. We're not looking at those things. We're looking at the things which cause our failure. And when we say failure, what we're talking about specifically is what are the things that have been driving us into the food. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Now, briefly, with respect to time, and we're not going to have time to cover everything here by a long shot because we have, to, we have to be done here in a little bit. But what is a resentment? A resentment comes from two words, ancient words, re, which means to do again, repaint, re-edit, re refuel, means to do again, and sentiri, which means to refeel. And as I refeel old hurts and old resentments, 
there is something that's happening in my head that doesn't happen in a lot of other areas. Let's look briefly. I happen to love the Chicago Bears. I love the Bears. Always have. And the Chicago Bears won the Super Bowl after the 1985 season. They won the Super Bowl in New Orleans, Louisiana. They beat the New England Patriots. And I have somewhere in my house, I can't, I don't know exactly where it is right now, but I have somewhere in my house a CD replication of the broadcast of that Super Bowl, and I know it by heart. I could tell you every commercial. I could tell you everything that the announcers are going to say. I could tell you what, what they're going to show. I could tell you the whole thing. Trust me, I've seen it enough times. I know the thing by heart. Now, that CD has something I don't have, and that's called fidelity. Fidelity means honesty and exactness. Fidelity, honesty, truth, dependability, exactness. And every time I play that CD, it's the same. Not so with me and a resentment. When I replay a resentment, I change it just a little bit every single time, and I make your part much more dastardly and my part much more innocent until you give me enough time and you give me enough opportunity to rehearse and replay that resentment in my head. I was standing there doing nothing and you came along and you did me dirt. <sighs> Excuse me, it's my cock the cold here. But anyway, you give me enough time to replay that resentment. And it is not going to be enough that I hate you. I'm going to go out and recruit other people to hate you too, and I know just who to call. I know just who to tap into so I can talk smack about you. And I'm going to water the resentment and fertilize the resentment, and I'm going to warm the resentment, and I'm going to nurture that resentment as best I can because there's a payoff to that resentment. The payoff to that resentment is I no longer have to take responsibility for my own life. I can abdicate responsibility for my life and blame you. And, oh, I love that. And then the payoff of payoffs. The cherry on the Sunday. Oh, I love this part. If you hadn't have done that to me, I wouldn't be in the shape I'm in today. And it's all your fault. So I'm going to assign blame to you and that means I can abdicate responsibility for my life and I can justify the most errant nonsense imaginable. Now, I haven't the time to go much further because Leah originally told me an hour and then there's going to be an hour for whatever. So I don't have the time to go through the rest of the chapter here. Maybe perhaps one day soon you'll have me back. But this is the nature of the resentment section without going into the individual columns here. And then there's the fear section, and then there's the sexual harms done others section, which needs a little bit of an explanation too, but not in the forum that we have here this morning. So, Leah, I'm going to keep within the parameters of the hour 
and I will turn it back over to you because I've, I've taken up the, the entire time here with just the first part of it. Okay? Well, thank you so much, Har- Harlan, for this uh, very revealing and transforming study of Step 3 and 4. By all means, if you wanted to uh, continue, you could. We have all the time here. Or would you like okay. to transition into question and answer period? You tell me. I'll do whatever you th- I'm here to serve. So you tell me. Whatever it is you want me to do, that's what I will do. If you're up to further explanation, I think that okay. would be very useful. All right. If, if let's, you're let's do that then. We'll do okay that for that. a while. Okay. We'll, we'll kind of give it the Reader's Digest, but we'll get back to it. I'm back on page 64, the bottom of the, bottom of the um, page. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stems all stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we have not only been mentally and physically ill, the twist and the allergy, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In other words, when I work the steps, not when I'm dieting with group support, not when I'm swinging from the chandelier, not eating pizza. When I am in physical, excuse me, when I am in spiritual recovery, I straighten out mentally the twist and physically the allergy. Because if the Kit Kat bar doesn't go in my body, I can't trigger the allergy. In dealing with resentment, here's my instruction for the first section of the fourth step, the resentment section. This is going to be four columns. The fear is four columns, and the sex is five columns. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper, column one. Who or what do you resent? It's not always going to be a who. I can tell you just from my own life experience, there are what's that I resented too. The first one being the expression, blood is thicker than water. Anytime someone said in my presence, blood is thicker than water, I resented that because I don't have, live. I don't have, brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins. I don't have any of that. So when people would say that to me or say it around me, it always got my goats. Also, I was 335 pounds as a senior at Mather High School in Chicago. And as a 335-pound senior in high school, I didn't fit in my skin. I didn't fit in my clothes. I didn't fit in the desk. I didn't sit in a chair. I didn't sit anywhere in life. And one of the resentments that I had later in life was not a counselor, not a principal, not a vice principal. No one ever said, can we help you? Can we do something to help you? No one. So it's not always going to be a who you resent. It can be a what. It can be different things. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. We asked ourselves why we were angry. Now, that's going to be the second and the third column. Why we were angry, column two. So column one is who or what are you angry at? Column two, in 19 words or less, based on the example that we're given on page 65, what did they do to you? Please don't write a novel about what they did to you. For God's sakes, make it short. 19 words or less, what did they do to you? Column three, what of the basic instinct or instincts of life were affected? 
Was it the social? Was it sex? Was it security or a combination thereof? In most cases, it's going to be a combination. And column four is something we'll get to in just a minute. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with who were usually as definite as this example? Now, I'm only going to do Mr. Brown because we don't have time. But these are the first three columns of the four columns in the resentment section. I'm resentful at Mr. Brown. Why? His attention to my wife affects my sex relations, self-esteem, fear. Let's take a look at this resentment against Mr. Brown. Brown is paying attention to his wife. That is a threat in the sex area of what he already holds. But it's more than that. Now listen to me. It's an interwoven world. It's not just about the wife. What else is, is, is occurring here beneath the surface? If Brown runs off with his wife, what are people going to think of him? What is he going to think of him? Also, he's got fear down there. What is it he fears? He fears that she's going to take away his money. She's going to take away his house. She's going to take away his car. She's going to take away the vacation cottage that they have in Minnesota or wherever. He, she's going to do things that are going to make him feel bad about himself. She's going to run off with another man. That's something that happened in my life, too. My, my ben, I've been divorced now almost four years. My wife fell in love with somebody that she met through her boss at, at her office. And that's exactly what happened to me. So these things, it's an interwoven world. It's an absolutely interwoven world. So we don't have the time to go through the rest of the examples. And me being on the phone here this morning is no substitute for having a sponsor that knows the big book. And that's what I'm going to strongly suggest. And if you're confused about any of this and we're going to move forward with it, that you have that sponsor that can explain these things to you. Bottom of 65, continuing on. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. There's nothing in there about perfection. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got, that's for sure. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. So we were definitely flies in the spider web. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Now, this is a very, very important sentence coming up here. Not that there's unimportant sentences in the big book, but it is plain, page 66, it is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. The more I resent, the worse I feel. The worse I feel, the more my mental twist will drive me into the food. Once I eat the food and I get the effect, I'm going to trigger the allergy. I'm going to pass through the well-known stages of the spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat again. And I'm going to repeat that cycle over, 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 over again. 
the mind telling you that the food makes perfect sense and the body ensuring that it doesn't, that it's not. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile, but with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave, we found that it is fatal. The freshness date on my unhappy childhood has expired. Now, there are people that are listening to this that have been molested. There are people that are listening to this that have been raped. You think it's only females? Males know about that too. There are people that are listening to this that are the victims of crime and they are the victims of injustice. And there are people that are, have listened to this that have been violated by the people that they were close to, that their family members or close friends violated their soul. I'm sorry. That's a horrible thing. My father knew a little bit about that too. My father was one of eight children. My father had an extended family of about 40 people. He was the only one that died of natural causes. He knew a little bit about that too. There are things which happen in life which are mortifying. But I have to make a decision at some point and I have to say, you can carry this, God, because I can't lift it anymore. Now, maybe I had no part in that resentment. Maybe the molestation, maybe the rape, maybe the crime, maybe the murder, maybe the suicide of somebody very close to you, a parent, a child, a son, a daughter, whoever. Maybe that happened to you. And I'm sorry but I'm responsible if I want to continue to pick it up. I'm responsible for carrying it further when God is outstretching his hands and saying, let me carry your luggage. Because if I'm going to continue to refuse to hang on to this, I am going to eat myself to death. And then that person who perpetrated that crime kills yet another person. I'll be damned. I gave this illness decades of my life. I can't get back any of it. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years old. I miss everything. But I'm not going to give this illness one more second. Not another second of my life. I'm going to live until I die. We found that it is fatal for when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, which means I'm dieting with group support. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again and with us to drink is to die. If we had to live, if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. The grouch is the person that's always mad. They're always in a bad mood. You have friends like that. Maybe you have relatives like that. They're always pissed off. The brainstorm is the person who's very explosive. They can be very nice and they can be wildly angry. Either way, these were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. 
we turned back to the list for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us in that state. The wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. And they kill by driving me into the arms of the chocolate-covered cherries. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. In other words, my broken brain cannot fix my broken brain. I can't just make a decision not to be angry anymore. I can't read this and say, well, I'm just not going to be angry anymore. I Oh, that it were so simple. Oh, that it were so simple. This was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, here's your fourth-step prayer, or what's commonly referred to as the sick man prayer. This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. Now we're going to look on page 67 at the fourth column in the resentment inventory, and that is our part. We avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Referring to our list again, Putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Uh-oh, don't want to do that. I've never done that. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Fourth column of the resentment inventory, what did I do based on the defects of character? And I enumerate the defects of character. Out of selfishness, I did this. Out of self-seeking, I did that. Out of dishonesty, I did that. And maybe there are defects that don't apply to that, but I'm going to look at my part in that resentment. What did I do to set the ball in motion? Now, again, some of you have been molested. Great. Maybe there are people who have done you tremendous, egregious wrong. Maybe you had no part in it. Perhaps. Then we look at why am I carrying it around? What purpose is it serving me? I look at these things and I put them down on paper. Notice that the word fear, back to the chapter because we don't have time. Bottom of 67, notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classified with, classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. So we did a four-column inventory for fear. Any fear we have that has a resentment in connection with it goes in the resentment, resentment section. 
but the four columns for the resentment are identical to the four columns of the fear with one little change there. In resentment, the four columns are who are we angry at or what? What did they do to us? What part of self is affected, basic instinct? And what is our part based on the defects of character? Well, in the fear column, or the fear inventory, excuse me, we're going to use four columns. Who or what do you fear? I fear dying. I fear outliving my money. I fear what's going to happen. Uh, maybe some of you have handicapped children, special needs children. You fear what's going to happen when you're gone to them. These are very common fears. Put them down. Who or what do you fear? Why do you fear it? Well, if I outlive my special needs child, who's going to take care of them? Things like that. Column three, what part of self is affected? And column four, what did you do to set this in motion based on the defects of character? Column one, who or what do you fear? Column two, why do you fear it? Column three, what part of self, basic instinct, is affected? Column four, what did you do based on the defects of character to set the fear in motion? Now, again, what I'm doing here is not a substitute for having a sponsor. And if you're not up to the fourth step and you're still eating or whatever, you know, but these are things you need to move through very quickly. Let's go back to the chapter, page 68. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper. Even though we had no resentment in connection with them, we asked ourselves why we had them, column two. Column three, wasn't it? Be column two and three, excuse me. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Perhaps there is a better way. We think so, but we are now on a different basis—the basis of trusting and relying upon God. If you don't have step two, you can't trust and rely on God. It is assumed when you're doing four that you've done two. Okay? We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. I have an infinite God. I also do not have, and this is just me, I'm not telling anybody, I have a, a God that does not have skin. I found that gods with skin are very fallible, and I do not have a God that is pictures of dead presidents. In other words, money. My God does not have skin. Okay, we are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent that we do what he thinks he would have us and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? I love that metaphor. Calamity with serenity. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate to us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. I do that in my heart. I ask him, what would you have me be? And it's to serve other people. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. Now, before we get into the, the last of the three parts, the sex inventory, let's briefly, and it's hard for me to condense this, so I'm going to do the best I can for the sake of time. Let's look at some of the ways that we hurt each other, harm each other in this area of sex. Now, the most obvious way that we have is cheating. And we all have that, 
you know, as the thing that we look at and cheating and, and that's the way we do it. But there's other more subtle ways. And there are ways that we can harm other human beings, hurt other human beings, injure other human beings without taking our clothes off. You don't necessarily have to take your clothes off to hurt each other or harm each other in this sexual area. Let's look at a couple of these things. First of all, did you use your God-given sex prowess, your attraction, to manipulate or harm another person? In other words, whether you're male or female doesn't matter. Did you use your God-given sex powers to encourage, entice someone who was attracted to you, were you flirtatious with this person, knowing very well they had no shot with you, they had no chance with you, but maybe they were your boss, maybe they were your supervisor, maybe they owned the company, and so you led them on thinking that there was something really going on between you, and sex has nothing to do with that. Enjoyment has nothing to do with that. Recreation has nothing to do with that. And if we look at sex and we give the opinion of me, I'm not God, I'm not the big book, I'm not Bill, I'm not Bob or Roseanne, I'm just saying me. This is my opinion. And that is God gave us the sex instinct so that we could enjoy it. So enjoyment or recreation, enjoyment or recreation. These are the things we do. And when we talked about the cheating, now again, this is my opinion. It's not God's. It's not OA's. It's not AA's opinion. This is my opinion. I cannot be working the 12 steps while I'm breaking the Ten Commandments. It's not congruent. Once I start doing one, I'll do the other. And so it doesn't work that way for me. Now, let's go back to the illustration. We're using our sex powers, our God-given sex powers, to lead someone on, and enjoyment has nothing to do with that. Recreation has nothing to do with that, etc. Those are you. That is using my God-given sex prowess to help me in the area of the security instinct. Maybe I'm withholding sex. Maybe I'm withholding affection until somebody comes around to my way of thinking. Maybe I'm in a committed relationship, but I'm going to withhold sex. I'm going to withhold affection until they become what I want them to become. Maybe they're White Sox fans and I want them to be Cubs fans. I'll show them. I'll cut them off at the pass until they go rah, 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 sit, boom, bah, I love the Cubs, and then I'll give them what they want. Maybe I'm in a committed relationship and I need to give in a little bit more. Maybe I'm in a committed relationship and I need to be a little less demanding of the person that I'm in the relationship with. Have I used sex, caring nothing for the other person, just to seduce someone and entice someone because I was lonely? I didn't care anything for them. I just didn't want to be alone. Maybe I just wanted somebody to buy me dinner and a movie. Maybe I'm having sex with someone to get even with another human being. Maybe I'm using my God-given sex powers to harm or hurt another person because I know that it will give me great satisfaction. So these are some, but not all, of the ways that we hurt each other, that we harm each other in this area of sex. And these are the things that we're looking at. These are the things that we're enumerating in our sex inventory. 
Are the relationships pure or are they based in pure manipulation, pure uh, just absolutely using a person to get what I want, caring nothing for how it's going to make them feel? <laughs> Excuse me. The cock hold it. All right. Many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a based necessity appropriation. Then we have voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fear and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? Now, we're going to have a five-column inventory for sex. Five rather than four. The five columns of the sexual inventory is who did you hurt? This will always be a who. Who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them? Column three, what basic instinct of life was affected? Column four, what defective character caused you to take or omit the actions in column two? Column five, what should you have done instead? I'm going to review that briefly. Column one, who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them or not do? Column three, what basic instinct was involved or instincts? Column four, defects. Now, you may think under the instinct that it's always the sex instinct. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Column four, what defects of character cause you to take or omit the actions described in column two? Column five, what should you have done instead? Back to the book, page 69. We reviewed our, con our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. In this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We suggested, we subjected, not suggested, we subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? It either is or it isn't. There's no middle ground. We ask God to mold our ideals to help us live up to them. Another thing I do, excuse me, I forgot the thing again. All right, anyway, I have an ideal of what I'm looking for. Now, when I say I have a sexual ideal, that does not mean I'm looking for a girl, 45 to 55, she's got to have brown hair, big boobs. No, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what is it? that I want to shoot for? What is it that is going to be my ideal? And these are the things we have to look at. If I don't know where I'm going, any road will get me there. I have to know where I'm going. The big book gives good orderly direction, G-O-D. And this is part of what I'm looking at is 
what is my ideals, and help us to live up to them. And that doesn't mean I have ideals for the other person. I've learned many lessons along life's way. I'm talking about my behaviors. I'm talking about what I'm bringing to the party. I'm not talking about what I'm looking for from the other person. In my marriage, I very quickly became the child, not the husband. I may not have gotten the wife I always wanted, but I got the mom I always wanted. And there are things you don't do to your mother and your mother doesn't do to you. And in my next relationship, I'm going to be the husband or I'm going to be the boyfriend or I'm going to be the lover. I'm not going to be the child. And I'm going to stand on my own feet. I'm not going to be overly dependent on another person. These are some but not all of the mistakes I made. Okay. We remember that always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. Whatever our, sex, our ideal sorry, turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. I have to stop waiting for the other person to change. I need to live up to the ideal. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. Leah, I'm going to just take a second here to finish the chapter. God, uh, just in leaving this paragraph, we must be willing to make amends. We amend the Constitution. We don't apologize to the Constitution. There's a world of difference between apology and amend. A world of difference. If you need help on that, find a good sponsor. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with other persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. Bottom line here is in the area of sex, just like anything else, if it feels right, it's right. If it feels wrong and I'm talking myself into it and I'm waving my hands and I'm not, it's wrong. It's wrong. God is a very clear communicator. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we are going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts of our experience. To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. I could spend an entire weekend just on that sentence. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us 
what we could not do for ourselves, we hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision, step three, and an inventory of your gross or handicaps, step four, you have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. If you've done step four, it's a beginning. It's not the end result. There's more to do. And we continue working the steps throughout our lives. It doesn't stop. I get calls from people, I work the steps and I'm still eating. Well, if you worked them, you'd still be working them and we wouldn't be having this conversation, would we? Leah, I'm done. It's 8 o'clock ready. Hey, Ismer. Or it is in Arizona anyway. Um, and uh, that's all I got on, on Chapter 5. Thank you so much, Harlan, for these fascinating insights on Chapter 5, specifically Steps 3 and 4. Do you have the uh, time and energy for a few questions this morning? I have time and energy for a few questions, yes, no problem. Okay, thank now, you. Now, there's one predicate, there's one thing I want to ask. Please do not ask me about food plans or what you can do for someone else. If, here's what you can do for someone else. I'll answer it now. Recover, recover, and recover, and I don't answer questions about food plants. That in mind? Okay, throw it open. Well taken. Before we begin, Harlan, let's just get your contact info since we know that will come okay. up. Okay, here's my contact information. My telephone number is 480-495-8969. If you're calling from out of the country, I probably can't call you back, so you'll need this. My number, again, is 480-495-8961. My email address is tarlin288 at gmail.com. I'll spell my name for you. H-A-R-L-A-N-288 at gmail.com. Are you at 480-495-8965? Oh, six one. Now I'm a woman. Okay, we thank you again. Uh, please, no questions related to food plans or concerning other people in your life. And in the interest of time, please relate your questions to step three or step four only. And questions, please, rather than comments. And let's take the first person, star one, to unmute. Hi, can I ask a question? Yes. Do you sponsor women? Uh, I have sponsored many women in the past, yes. Um, Yes, I have, yes. Started, okay. Okay, please, uh, the lady with the other question, go ahead. Yes, hi, I'm Alexandra, I'm a uh, recovering food addict. And I guess uh, I really appreciate everything you've said this morning. You mentioned that the advantage of resentment um, is to abdicate responsibility uh, and just to justify things. And I was wondering if you have an opinion about what the advantages uh, of resentment to myself are. You can beat yourself and justify errant nonsense and you you can live in hell and you can just blame yourself and blame your past and blame people it's no difference no difference and in order for me to stop blaming myself I have to work the steps and I have to do self-esteemable acts I have to get out and do God's will thank you thank you for the question who's next questions related to step three and four
This is Diane. Hi, Diane. Go ahead. Hi, Harlan. Thank you so much. Um, I would ask that you expand a little bit on the difference between amends and apology, please. I know you briefly touched on it. Okay. Let's let's just say, for example, because this is in the area of, of the sex inventory, but in any area, let's take a look at this. Let's just say, for example, that I have been kissing Fred's wife. I've been carrying on with Fred's wife for three years. Um, I do not apologize to Fred for kissing his wife. I stop kissing his wife. I have to take action. It is not enough for me to say, I owe you $12,000. I'm really sorry that I wrote you bad checks. I take the action and I pay you back the $12,000. If I don't have the $12,000 in one lump hunk, I begin by putting cash in Fred's hands and I start to pay him out weekly, monthly, whatever it is. In other words, I'm not just going to mutter and I'm sorry. I'm going to amend my behavior. An amend means to change. It comes from the root mend, to fix, to change, to alter. And it's very important that I don't just mutter, I'm sorry. It's important that I take that action and cease and desist this harmful behavior immediately. I hope that explains it. Thank you, Diane, for the question. Who's next? Star one to unmute. I talked too long now. I went to sleep. This is Jean. Oh. Go ahead, Jean. And then Michelle. Jean first, please. Uh, I was wondering why you used the word mental twist instead of mental obsession. Is that anywhere in the big book? Mental twist is in the big book. Mental obsession is not in the big book. Mental obsession is a word that's not introduced to the fellowship until 1952-53 when the 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12 was, was introduced. The big book is very clear that it describes it as a twist of the mind. There is no mental obsession in the book. The word obsession is in there, the word mental is in there, but they are never used together until the 12 and 12. So I try to stick to big book terminology. Thank you, Jean, for that question. Let's move on to Michelle, please. Hi, thank you so much for your service, Harvin. I really got a lot out of this today. Um, I'm wondering about, you you spoke about um, self-reliance versus reliance on a higher power and um, that you said that if it feels right and you sometimes you you go with it, but sometimes you feel like if there's a committee in your head debating it, it's not God's will. And right. I just um, was wondering, I struggle with this, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit. When I want to make, when I want to do something, let's just say, for example, I, I need to go to the store today. I need to get some, some fruit. I need to get some produce, whatever it is. That feels pretty right to me. That feels pretty right to me. When I go over to where the Doritos and the ice cream are or the chocolate-covered cherries, I am now not in a natural state of picking that up and eating it. I have to talk myself into it. I have to have the committee, if you will, in my head, the chatter, the monkey chatter, so that I can justify it. I'll stand there for a while. 
I'll read the ingredients, I'll, I'll, whatever that might be, it's not natural. And a very wise man said to me something that I carry with me, and I'll share it with you. If everything I did today, everywhere I went, every conversation I had, every single thing that went in and out of my mouth today was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, am I okay with that? Because if I'm not okay with that, then I'm engaging in behaviors that I want kept secret unto me, and therein lies the problem. I don't want it known that I ate chocolate-covered cherries today. I don't want you to know that. Well, hmm, that might be a problem. So I have to hide it. I have to talk myself into doing it. I have no problem with you knowing I have to go to the store today to get vacuum cleaner bags, and on my way back from there, I have to pick up some tomatoes and some apples and some things for the house. No problem at all. It just feels right because it is right. I hope that explains it. Thank you, Michelle, for the question. Who's next? Questions related to step three or four. Hi, this is Minky. Hi, go ahead. Um, Harlan, thank you. Um, I had a question. Uh, would you ever put yourself on the step four list and the resentment list? Um, not really. I think when I start to really look at these things, my resentment against myself really begins to clear up. Uh, I know people that have done that. They've tried to put themselves on the amends list and things like that. I make amends to myself by recovering. I make amends uh, to myself that way. And I clear up my resentments and fears and things about myself by just doing the work. I don't find it necessary to put me on there. For me, it's overthinking. It's really overthinking. We all make mistakes. It's, they have a name for people that make mistakes. They're called human beings. And by the working of the steps, these things really do start to clear up. So I hope that answers it. Thank you, Nikki, for the question. Hi, this Anyone is have... Andy from. Hi, this hey, is Andy, Andy from. <laughs> hi there, Leah. Um, hi, Harlan. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question. I'm a recovered compulsive reader. I've been through the steps. I'm now sponsoring. It's been a wonderful privilege. And, and I'm wondering um, if you could shed some light on methodology on keeping the third step active um, throughout your day. Um, by, doing, by doing 10, 11, and 12, if you look at 10, which we've talked about before in this, in this forum, if you look at 10, I'm really doing 4 through 12 on a daily basis. I'm absolutely doing it. And the way to keep step three alive is to remember that it's his will, not mine, but that's in step 10, and by doing four through 12 on a daily basis. The essence of step three is to do four through 12. It's not to stick in step three. A lot of the offshoot groups, they get stuck in the first half of the first step. And then there are people in the fellowships that will get stuck in the first three steps because they don't want to do the rest of them. But the way to honor step three is to do four through 12 on a daily basis. And how do I do that? By doing 10, 11, and 12. It takes me right through. Hope that answers it. Thank you, Andy, for that question. Who's next? Susan? Susan, your turn. Yeah. Thanks, sir. Thanks so much, Leah and Harlan. 
Harlan, I just want to say briefly before I ask my question that every time the words Narishkite or Fakakta are uttered, my heart is warmed. So thank you for that and for <laughs> okay. your beautiful share. Um, I, I benefited, and, I, and I've spoken to others who really benefited uh, when you did the resentment, selfish, self-seeking, and fear, and really spelled it out for us. And I missed a small portion of the call, so hopefully I didn't miss this, but I thought maybe I and the, benef- the group could benefit if you did a quick fear inventory. I don't even have an example, but, you know, pick the fear of your choice if you and Leia are okay with that, and maybe you could kind of run through a fear inventory specifically for us. Would that be okay with both of you? Sure. I'll go through one really quickly. Uh, I have a fear of outliving my money. Okay. So in column one, who or what do you fear? I fear outliving my money. Column two. Why do I fear outliving my money? Well, I want to buy things. I want to have nice things. I may want to go places. I live several thousand miles away from my home in Chicago, in my area in Chicago. So sometimes I like to go back and forth and visit. These are some of the things that that I need the money for. So column one, who or what do I fear? Um, I fear outliving my money. Column two, why? I want to buy things and go places. Column three, what part of self does that affect? Well, it's going to obviously affect security. It's obviously going to affect emotional security. It's obviously going to affect affect social instinct. What are people going to think of me if all my friends are going on a vacation and we're retired or whatever it is and I can't go out of money? Okay, so it's going to affect sex because it's, it's going to affect my ability to date. It's going to affect my ability to attract of, you know, females, whatever it is, it's going to affect my ability to go to places I want to go. The defects of character, and my part in this is, am I working hard enough and am I managing the finances that I currently hold to the utmost of my ability and am I trusting God? But here's the thing I need to do because the trusting God is a little later in the, in the paragraph. What am I doing currently and what could I be doing different that will help me save more money for my future? What defects of character? I'm being selfish because I just want God to deliver me a bag of money or I want some mythical, mystical person to take pity on me, on poor Harlan and deliver me money? No, I've got to get to work. So what's keeping me from that work? It's selfishness. It's self-seeking. I just want I just want a, a free ride to life. It's dishonest. I need to work hard. I'm only 59. I'm not 99. I can still work. I can still make money. And the, this is basically my part in it. What character defects? Selfishness, self-seeking, dishonesty. So this is a very quick fear inventory of that fear of me outliving my money. That's a very common fear. That's why I used it. Okay? Thank you, Susan, for the question. And let's take one more question. Start one to unmute. Last one? Okay. Yael? Yael, it's your turn. Oh, thank you, thank you, Harlan, for um, for all your insight. Um, I was just wondering if, by chance, do you know of any uh, worksheets that 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 um, 
let's say, that give examples of these deeper thoughts that go into your list. I mean, for example, and I've said this before on the line, you know, selfish. Where was I selfish? So I can always say, well, I wanted it to go this way and I wanted it to go that way. But um, but I miss a lot of the deeper, you know, the, the, the things that are underneath. And I'm wondering if there's any examples out there we can draw from to ask ourselves, oh, is that really what I was thinking? Or I don't know if you, you know, if you have any research. There's two things I would definitely recommend. I would definitely recommend getting a sponsor who knows the big book, not a sponsor that's going to direct you into all these other concordances and all these other things, but get a sponsor that knows the big book and get one that can sit down with you and share with you and expand on these things with you so that your understanding becomes clear. Excuse me. And the other thing I would suggest strongly is rereading some of this stuff after we're done. Reread some of this stuff, and you will be amazed at how much sometimes that repetition of going through this will, will help you tremendously. Um, but the most important ingredient I can give you is willingness, open-mindedness, because this is the essence of it. My confusion is equal to what my ego does not want me to see. And when I, if, if I was giving you an example of how to operate a train or how to turn on a light, you'd be very skilled at doing it. But once ego gets involved, now we become very paralyzed because my confusion is equal to what my ego does not want me to see. So willingness, open-mindedness, honesty, these are indispensable. And a sponsor that knows the big book can make all the difference in the world. Don't go out there and try to propel yourself through the process on your own by yourself. And those are the things I would tell you. If you need help, call me, call Leah, call you know, people that know the book that know the process, we will help you. It is our duty. It is our honor. It is our privilege to help you. Thank you, Yael, for the question, and thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Harlan, for giving so much of yourself this morning on A Vision for You. We appreciate your time and energy. And I will close the meeting with the way A Vision for You always closes its meeting and that is from the reading on page 164 from the chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.